Hello, I'd like to welcome everyone to another author event at the Poison Pen Bookstore. Today we're very fortunate to be doubly blessed with two amazing authors, Jennifer Robson and Hilary Adams. Um, before we begin, I'd like to let those tuning in virtually know the Poison Pen does have copies of Jennifer's and Hilary's books. We would be happy to send them to you. Either give us a call or go online to the Poison Pan. We can put them in the mail, or you can pick up copies at the store. Now I'd like to welcome Ellery and Jennifer. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. You're welcome. My first question for both of you is I'm always fascinated by an author's origin story. So who was Jennifer and who was Ellery before you became published? Let's start with you, Jennifer. Okay, I was a failed academic. Um, and, and a, a few other things in between. I, um, I, I studied history uh, as an undergraduate, and then I went to Oxford starting in 1992. Um, I'll be honest, I'm 53. Uh, it's been a long journey to get here. Um, uh, and I did my doctorate in modern history, um, focusing on uh, British history, and, and really specifically, I won't go into detail about my doctorate thesis, because, you know. <laughs> Unless anyone feels like a nap, actually, then for sure, for sure the doctoral thesis will do it. Um, but I was interested in issues um, uh, revolving around clothes rationing in World War II um, and how women coped with clothes rationing uh, because it lasted for a long time. Just imagine the horrors of having a family of growing children and no legal means to buy new clothing and it just and go from there. Um, and so I graduated in 1997. I could not find a teaching job. Um, university history departments everywhere were contracting. They continue to get smaller and smaller. Um, and, uh, and so I pivoted. I worked as uh, a magazine journalist uh, for some years. I worked uh, for the Globe and Mail newspaper uh, for a short period. Um, that was highly, highly stressful. Um, and then I worked at Penguin Books Canada for a couple of years. And then when I was at home with my kids, um, my son was born in 2004, and his sister, whose 16th birthday it is today, uh, hello Daniela, um, uh, was born in 2007. And it was when she was a baby uh, that I was sitting at home with the two of them. And I, I'd been freelancing, and I liked it, but I just did, it didn't set me on fire. I didn't love the work. And I thought of my late mother, who had been um, a family lawyer and later a judge, and my grandmother, who had been a print journalist in the 1930s when she was pretty much always the only woman in the newsroom. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought to myself, I, I think I have to try for something more, if only so I can feel I can hold my head up in front of these women who came before me, and even more importantly, uh, hold my head up in front of my daughter. Uh, not because I had fame, fortune, riches in mind, um, that practically never happens when you're a writer anyways, um, but because I wanted her to see me doing work that I loved. Um, and that's when I started writing what became my first book. Um, and without going into too much detail, it took me forever to get it published. Um, no one wanted a book about the First World War, um, and so it sat on the shelf until Downton Abbey came. And overnight, so nothing changed about the book at all. Uh, overnight, a market developed uh, for fiction set in the late Edwardian period, First World War period, uh, post-war period. And I had a book that was written and more or less ready to go. 
And that's, so I tried to find an agent again, and this time it was a completely different experience. Mm -hmm. And that, I signed with my wonderful agent, and here I am seven books later. Mm -hmm. I'm still pinching myself, still pinching myself <laughs> that I get to do this. It's the best job ever. Valerie, what about you? You have a rather colorful work history prior to being here. <laughs> uh, well, I've done, I've done all kinds of things, really. I, I've sold cars, I worked at a dry cleaners, I was a teacher, I worked at a daycare, I was a tech writer, I worked for a caterer. There's really nothing I didn't do, and mainly it's because I was in my 20s and I needed money and I would pretty much take any job. And I was an English major, so what are you going to do? Um, I was supposed to become a lawyer, that's what my parents wanted me to do, and I got into law school, but I lied to my parents, sorry, <laughs> told them that I didn't get in, um, and then I, I was going to go to grad school for creative writing, and I thought, oh great, that's, that's going to be a great job. So, couldn't get a job as a writer right out of that program, so I became a teacher, and I taught for eight years, and then I thought, I'm going to be a librarian. Librarians seem to have a great job. They get to talk about books all the time and tell people to shut up. I'm gonna, <laughs> I can do both of those things in spades. Um, so I couldn't get a library job. I finished my master's in library science. Couldn't get a library job anywhere to save my life where I read like crazy and I was going through this huge mystery binge. I don't know if any of you guys are genre binge readers, but I must read like 50 mysteries in a row. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I, I could kill somebody. Like, I feel like I might be unnatural at killing somebody. <laughs> and I was kind of unhappy. I was really missing home. So my first novel came out of being very lonely and really missing the state of North Carolina. And I thought the way I can get back to it is by writing a book about it. And since I can't make any friends, I'll make up some friends. <laughs> and that sounds pretty pathetic when I voice it out loud, but that is pretty much where my first novel came from. And I got about halfway through and I got super stuck. Then I also got pregnant and I had one of those crazy pregnancy dreams where I was like, I figured out what to do with the middle. <laughs> and I woke up at like two in the morning and wrote it down and I finished the novel and I got really lucky. I got an agent right away and she sold it right away. And that was 42 books ago. Wow. Yeah. And I'm 52, so we're close. <laughs> That's amazing. Let's switch gears and talk about the book or books that have brought you here today. Your recent um, book for Jennifer, that's your newish is the yeah. gown. You're soon to be here. Yeah. It's Coronation Street. Yeah. I'll do Van White. Yeah, exactly. The, the, and, I know, and there's the, the advanced purse thing that I always feel, except I never have a very nice manicure that I want to cover up. Um, <laughs> In a way, The Gown and, and Coronation Year are, are companion novels uh, in that there are there's some crossover between characters, although you can read them out of order. It won't, it won't affect your reading enjoyment at all. Uh, and they both center on um, these, these historic royal events. Um, but I'll be open and honest and say that the queen in neither book is a central character. Uh, what she does and what the royal background does is, is kind of have the, it's a type of, I would call it almost a scaffolding that I then build the story upon. Because what I really wanted to write about, and I am very interested in the royals, and I can talk, oh my goodness, what the queen wore. <laughs> uh, like, you know, all, royal weddings galore, all of it. I, 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 somehow my brain has become a, an absent sponge for trivia related to the royals. Um, but I never felt I could talk about the queen as a character because 
in one way, I, I just felt wrong about it in that here's somebody who's been in the absolute glare of the spotlight her entire life from when she was a newborn. Uh, even though she wasn't the direct heir to the throne, she was the, the first grandchild of uh, uh, King George V and, and Queen Mary, and, and as such was just the focus of so much attention from 1926 onwards. Um, and I... I I just did, never felt right to kind of intrude upon her interior life. And I also couldn't really ever be sure what that was. Um, you know, who was the hidden Elizabeth? And rather than speculate and, and get it really wrong, uh, I thought I would use her, uh, you know, events from her life as the background to stories about ordinary people. Um, it, because that I could figure out, that I felt you know, uh, closer to, obviously, since I am very much more on the ordinary. You know, my family comes from very humble origins in the UK. Um, and uh, and so, and, and what I really wanted to know was what was it like, uh, starting with the gown, what was life like after the war for people in Britain? Um, because often what we do is we kind of skip. We, we go straight from uh, VE Day. And the crowds cheering in Trafalgar Square, and the King and Queen and Churchill on the balcony, and everyone is so jubilant and happy that the war is over. And then somehow we kind of take a little skip, and in, and then the next thing we're into the 1950s, kind of a uh, a, a day glow, uh, Bobby Soxers, uh, new look, um, everything is joyful 1950s, um, which in some ways owes more to kind of American cinema than to reality, and. Uh, and we skip over what happened in the second half of the 1940s, which is a very long, very grim period of uh, post-war rebuilding that was very slow. Um, Britain was basically finished as a world power by the end of 1945. There was just no more money. And that meant that there was no money to rebuild the country. And it happened very slowly. And, and you know, rationing still uh, was happening, uh, you know, seven years after the war. And so I wanted an insight into what it was like for people in that period. Um, and then of course I, I had to come back to it because yes, the royal wedding was an incredible occasion in 1947. Uh, so then I, for that I focused on the story of the women who made Princess Elizabeth's wedding gown and specifically who did the embroidery. Um, and with coronation year, I just felt impelled to go back and ask, what was happening in 1953? Were things any better? Uh, was life any more hopeful? Uh, the short answer is yes. Um, things were still pretty grim uh, for many people, especially ordinary people. Um, and so for this book, I, I, I was tempted, there were moments I was tempted to go back to Norman Hartnell's Salon and talk about the women, maybe different women, who had made the Queen's coronation gown. And I, I had a, was very tempted, but then I thought maybe that's just a little too much of a good thing. And so instead I set it in a, a hotel uh, called the Blue Lion that finds itself on the parade route, on the procession route on Coronation Day. And even though the hotel has been slowly failing for ages, uh, it looks as if maybe they'll be saved uh, by, the, you know, just the, the adjacency to the parade route means they can charge a fortune for rooms that look out over the parade route, as happens today, as will happen in the upcoming right. coronation or any royal wedding. So so those are those are the two books. There was a book in between called Our Darkest Night, which is set in Italy um, during the war, and it came out in the height of COVID, and it's a one, I love it. 
Um, one of the central characters from that reappears in a coronation year. But I think for the purposes of, of you know these two books, I think they're I think of them as companion novels, really. What about you? You're here with one in your book retreat. Yes. Um, one in your bone and stone. She's, she's got it over there. So the, the newest is, um, oh my gosh, yes. Thank you. I'll flash this. So this is, um, can't even get back up there. This is a murders in the, Murder in the Poet's Walk. Um, thank you. And the idea for this one came about because I was, watch me just like fall on my face. I was looking for a, a greeting card. For, and I can't even remember what the situation was right now, and I was going down the greeting card line and thinking, greeting cards need to be updated. Like, there are so many real life instances that do not exist in the greeting card land, like, I'm sorry you had a bad breakup, or I'm sorry I was a jerk during our fight, or I'm sorry I'm a bad parker. I don't care like what it is, but I mean, there's just so many instances, like, maybe I was trying to send a, a card to my son in college. And you know, he's, he's 18 years old, and I can send him some like flowery little butterflies. I miss you, and he'd be like, ew. So, you know, but what about one that just went with cookies and just said, I felt like you were hungry. Like that would be a good modern card, right? Like I felt like you were hungry. So I wanted to create the situation where I had a bunch of writers coming together to win the contract for this current mood greeting card company, which I still think would be a brilliant company. It would be current mood and would have all these kind of current contemporary greeting cards in language that we use, not the flowery. And then I started wondering how much do greeting card writers get paid? And it's terrible. It's like $25 per card. Mm -hmm. And they're on per card payment basis. So no one's going to be able to support themselves making greeting cards. But in the fictional world, my fictional world, they were going to get a six figure salary for being like the main <laughs> artist. They had to do all the art and greeting card writing um, inserts for these cards. So they're at Storyton Hall, which is a resort for bibliophiles. So all of us would be super happy there. Mm -hmm. The entire place is geared for readers. It has reading rooms and tea and these beautiful gardens. It is, in fact, a, an old English manor house that was transported brick by brick to the western part of Virginia. And it is actually really based uh, based on a real place called the Homestead Resort, which is in Bath County. If any of you guys need a vacation, just go there. It is peaceful, it is beautiful, and it's quiet. You don't see people with their phones out, they're not there with their computers, they don't have their iPads out, they're actually enjoying the moment. There's lawn tennis and croquet and board games in the library and the afternoon tea every day. It's a really beautiful place. I've been there a bunch of times. Um, but of course, I have to kill people, so <laughs> we start this off with a, a poetic-themed uh, wine tasting. So every, each one of your tables would have a wine, like a Pablo Neruda Perot, a Pinot Noir, for example, and then all the food to go with it, because I love writing about food, as those of you who read my books know. I, I like to eat, and I like to write about food. And at the end of the night, Jane, who's the resort manager, finds a little slip of paper on the floor. She's helping the staff clean up that says, you know, basically, if you tell anyone, you're going to pay for it. And she thinks, oh, no, not again, because people like to die at her resort. <laughs> and of course, somebody is going to die because I want them to die, to die in a poetic theme to go along with my greeting card theme. She is going to be strung up like Lady of Shalott inside of a boat in the pond. 
And so, you know, now she's got to figure out which one of these poets is a murderer, and are there going to be more victims, and are their death scenes all going to come from famous poems, which they are. So each one of my books in this series kind of has a different event that sets the tone for that book. So Murder in the Paperback Parlor, for example, has had romance novelists visiting, and that book was kind of about plagiarism. And this one has poets. Sometimes it has children's books, writers and illustrators. So it's the event at the resort that kind of drives the theme, and then there are always bodies because <laughs> I only know how to kill people. I don't know how to like bring them together. I only know how to kill people. Yes, and Paper Cuts is coming out at the end of April, and that's the book six and secret book in Scone Society, and again, these are bookish mysteries, literary themed mysteries, and I really, really, this might be my favorite one in the series, the one that's coming out. Talk a little bit about the origin of that series, because I found it fascinating, your character mentioned this as books to you. Okay, I will. So this is my little RX pad. So. If I were Nora, the main character in the Secret Book and Scone Societies, I would own a bookstore, and if you came in and told me that you were having a particular problem that you wanted to solve, for example, you had a really unruly teenage son. My son must wonder why I bring him up in, in <laughs> Nora would find a list of books for you to read, and they wouldn't all be self-help. They might be novels about relationships between a mother and a teenage son. And they wouldn't necessarily make you feel better, that's not the point, but to make you realize that other people have been through the situation you've been in so that you don't feel so alone in your situation. And also you can see, well, how do these fictional characters get through this particular block or problem? And do you want to follow them or do you want to do something on your own? But her attitude is you can't just bypass the hurt, you have to go through it to come out the other side and books can help you go through and get to that the end of that difficult phase or tunnel or what have you. So she's an amateur bibliotherapist and that's somebody who uses books as healing. And for those that might not be aware of it, this that's a real thing. It People is. Really yeah. that and I thought I made it up and you know I didn't. The Chinese made it up like thousands of years ago. So just goes to show you there's no original ideas. <laughs> what I love is on your website you have a lot of I do. I have bibliotherapy for a bunch of different topics, so if you guys ever wanted to go on there, you weren't feeling, you needed like a dose of hope, I've got books that will give you a dose of hope, or if you really hate your boss, <laughs> really hate your boss and you want to feel better about the situation, I've got books for you, they're all on there. For a moment, so. I thought you were going to say, if you really hate your boss. <laughs> I'll kill him. <laughs> you know, that's always, that's that's always implicit. Yeah. 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 Just DM me some names. I'm always looking for new names. Jennifer, you've always written historical fiction, um, and you had said something that I thought was really quite um, brilliant. When you're writing your books, you said it's not about making history seem impossible, but making it seem plausible. Yeah. Can you kind of expand on that? So, you know, a few times, uh, you know, when I've done uh, kind of Q&A sessions like this, and, and I'll, I'll get somebody asking a question, and, you know, more, it, it'll be along the lines of, uh, you know, you, you, you had this particular thing happen in the book, uh, did it really happen? Um, and either they've been, they're completely convinced that it happened and then say it didn't, or they're, they're having, this is usually people who aren't big fiction readers who will ask this next question, it should, 
both, but your character was, was interacting with a real person and then how could that have happened? And uh, you can see the kind of the gears turning in their head like, I, how was that even possible? Um, and I remember I was at the Vancouver Writers Festival six, seven years ago. And uh, and I was talking about uh, my book, Good Night from London. So maybe it was more like five, I guess. Um, and somebody asked how it was possible that my fictional character, uh, Ruby, uh, was able to have a conversation with Eleanor Roosevelt, which she does in the book. And a part of me felt, I could see everyone around the room kind of going, oh, honey. Like, oh, honey. <laughs> Let's just sit down and go over the whole premise of what is a book. <laughs> and I didn't want to embarrass him. Right. And I think he, was act, he wasn't act, act, asking out of any, there's no, no kind of malice, malice at all. Yeah. He just was very curious. It was, it's as if his brain had got stuck on how this was possible. And so what I tried to explain was, okay, so, so it's, this is fictional. I made that up. It did not happen. Eleanor Roosevelt did not me in real life, my character, because my character never existed. <laughs> but I had to make it believable. And so it wasn't just the case that it was possible, uh, which I had to prove in the first place. So was Eleanor Roosevelt in London at the time I said she was? She was. Uh, was she in the habit of um, you know, uh, doing kind things for young journalists, particularly women? Absolutely she was. She was known for it. Um, would she do things like uh, is it, is it conceivable that she would have invited Ruby uh, to share, uh, to, to hop in her car and give her a ride across London? Absolutely uh, possible. And so at that point, it's becoming not just possible, but plausible. It all makes sense. It, uh, everything lines up. And, and that's when I think, you know, that's that extra mile, I think, especially with historical fiction. You, you know, you have, to, you have to go beyond just, is it possible? Could it have happened? Um, which you'll get from just a cursory kind of looking up of facts. And beyond that too, is this plausible? Does this feel real to the reader? Um, and in that sense, I knew that I, I, I'd achieved it because it was so plausible that this, this man, who was clearly an intelligent person, was flummoxed by it. He was like, it, it feels so real to me. How could it not have happened? It clearly couldn't have happened. And, 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 and that's actually, if I send people off Googling things, <laughs> that I feel as if that's a sign of, of yep. you know, the book having worked. And, and we were talking just before we started about how I get a lot of emails from people who are convinced that the character Miriam Dessin from The Gown is a real person and why, specifically, why can't they find her artworks online? <laughs> and, and I've worked out, you know, I, I, I I, I don't send a form response, but I've worked it out over the years, which is, and I don't want to embarrass anyone either, which is um, Miriam actually is a, a, a concoction of my imagination, but she's based on my, my wish for someone like her to be real. Uh, when I started working on the book, I wanted there to be an, a, a great female artist coming out of the post-war period uh, who had uh, experience of having survived the Holocaust, who was, say, French or, or from Central Europe, I wanted there to be this towering figure. And there, there actually isn't. Uh, you know, there are many great artists from that period, many of them having survived the Holocaust, but for that specific kind of set of criteria, there isn't a person. Um, 
So I had to. I wanted her to be. I wanted her to be. Yeah, and I still feel the artwork that you describe is so unique. And I'm not going to spoil anything, but she describes a piece toward the end, which is actually extremely moving. And and I got kind of emotional when I was reading it, and I was thinking. We need there to be this piece. Well, and, that's and I can see it, it in know? my head. Yeah. And unfortunately, I have no skills as a visual artist whatsoever. Um, so it's there in my head. I could never recreate it. I mean, I was able to do the embroidery for the gown, but in terms of a, a great, oh, a great, yeah, <laughs> but in terms of a great, great monumental piece mm-hmm. of work like she did, I, I can't. What I did find out, though, and this happens to so many people I know, you publish a book, and and then people who have knowledge of what you've written about come out of the woodwork because you know the book itself garners more publicity than you could ever hope to get as a writer putting a, a question out in, onto social media saying, I really need to know more about this, can anyone answer me? Mm-hmm. You find out after publication and someone wrote to me and said, uh, I, I read the gown, I loved it. I wonder if you're familiar with the works uh, of a woman called Esther Wiesenthal Krinitz. Uh, and I was, I was not, I'd never heard of her, I was so mortified. And when I looked her up, she was a Polish uh, Jew who had survived the Holocaust. She was a self-taught embroiderer and she made these beautiful small scale, but very beautiful embroideries um, of her experiences, not uh, during the Holocaust, but before, a village life in this tiny place in Poland. And, and they looked so much like what I imagined um, uh, Miriam's works to be that now I have, a, you know, I, I routinely will say to people, if you want to know or get a sense of what Miriam's works look like, this is one artist who's, who's come the closest in my imagination. Um, but it's still, I mean, I wish, oh, I wish I could, I could, you know, be Miriam and be able to create those, those works of art to share with people. Valerie, um, you write what are termed cozy mysteries, I think, for lack of a better marketing term. Can you kind of explain how you would define that to someone who's never read a cozy mystery? Well, I think that this series is a traditional cozy mystery series and that the the murder happens somewhat off camera and it's not very graphic mm-hmm. and there's there's no curse words and it's an amateur sleuth and she works with a community. So the most important thing about cozy mysteries is the community who's assisting the sleuth. Not that she's just some random nosy Parker, but she has another kind of job. Like her job is not to solve crime. She has a a valid reason for getting involved and then the community comes together to restore justice. That's like the main tenet of cozy mysteries and that they're not too graphic and the language isn't too coarse. Secret Book and Scone Society is not a traditional cozy mystery series. It's more like a traditional mystery fused with women's fiction and a splash of magical So it's like a rescue dog series. It doesn't really fit in any category. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, and and I love rescue animals, so I basically wrote a rescue animal uh, genre. So yeah, I've just made it my own new genre. It's like rescue book. Doesn't sound very good, does it? But yeah, anyway, so it is is a traditional mystery because yes, I do. There is an occasional curse. Sorry, but you know, sometimes you have to do that. And um, some of the topics are a little bit heavier. There are times where I bring up some social justice issues or whatever that I might not have put in this series because they're going to lend to more emotional uh, responses out of the reader, which is what I want as I mature as a writer and as a human being. I, I like to write 
that more grittier things. And um, not that we don't do that in cozies, we do, but we only do that, that to a certain extent. And luckily, I have a super supportive <coughs> publisher, and she just lets me do what I want. And so I have been doing what I want in the series, and apparently it's something that readers really relate to and really enjoy. So, nah, nah. <laughs> Should have let me do that years ago. <laughs> to not scare off any potential readers who right. are talking Stephen King kind of gritty or anything. No, no, it's nothing like that. It's just, no. it's just that it's going to evoke more emotions in you than maybe some of my other series. I mean, a lot so of people take will cozy tell me. Out of it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you still have your cozy bookstore, and you still have the scent of coffee brewing and pastries being baked, and there's still the community and the friendship between the women, but all the women in the Secret Book and Scone Society are old enough to have had a past and to have secrets, and so they're, they're already coming well, that's in. That's secret comes in. Yes, they that's each have slow. a secret that, that's okay, that they don't want to share with other people, and it makes them, um, they don't want to be vulnerable. And that's what draws them together is they, they all kind of been trying to shut people out because they've, they've made huge mistakes and been hurt and they're ashamed. And you know, when you get to your 50s, you've made mistakes. And so I wanted to write about women that were more like myself, that had some regrets, but that still were very hopeful and thought they could still, they could still do anything they wanted, but had lived long enough to have done some things that would have liked to wipe away if possible, but just makes you who you are. So. And what are the um, challenges of writing a series? Because you've written a number of series. Do you always know going in it's going to be this many books? Oh, I don't. Um, so I'm a big believer in ending a series before it gets stale. Now, I know some readers don't like that, and I'm really sorry, but if I'm not feeling very passionate or very invested in a series anymore, then, then I'll wrap it up. I mean, I don't, I don't like to leave things on a cliffhanger, but um, you know, I will wrap things up and then start something new. And I know that that can be disappointing, but also my characters grow and they age. They don't stay the same. There are some kind of formula mystery series where the character is 25 for 25 books and likes the same, has the same love triangle for 15 books. And that's great. It's just, I don't, I don't usually read those books and those aren't the kind of books that I want to write. So my characters do age and, and people do get married and they have children and after a point, the, the tensions that were there, they start dissolving and then it, it's time to wrap it up. So I know that there will be three more books in the Secret Book and Scone Society because I just signed a contract for those, so those will <laughs> definitely be going up to nine. And then I just revisit. I revisit after every every contract and say, like, I want to keep going or I think it's time for something new. Um, Jennifer, I know you brought some research aids for the game. Oh. Can you talk a little bit about cool the research behind that? Yeah. Well, I alluded to earlier that I had gone to London. Uh, and actually, before you terrible. Um, people sometimes think that writers take advantage of history, but it's not like you plan for the Queen's. No. Oh, gosh. I mean, I've had a few people say, oh, you know, good luck, Jen. Uh, way to go. The, you know, the, 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 like, I'm happy. I'm not happy that the Queen passed away at all. I sat in my nightgown and cried for maybe three days. Um, I have, you know, I'll be honest, I have complicated feelings about the idea of uh, a system of constitutional monarchy. As a Canadian, I, I live in that system. Um, but I have completely uh, unalloyed feelings of very positive, warm associations with the Queen. 
as I, I think is true of, of, of most Canadians. Um, and so I was very upset when she died and I was, I had been dreading it because I had noticed, I, like many other people, I noticed that she was seeming to go downhill. And when she didn't attend the Bramer gathering uh, at the beginning of September, I thought, oh gosh, this is not great because she'd never, ever missed it. Um, and then I, you know, I was stunned. Um, and coronation year, I had finished months before. It, it was fully edited. It was set for an April release. Um, I remember thinking, oh gosh, like, that's just crazy that I have a book called Coronation Year. And at that point I thought, and then the following year there'll be an actual coronation. Mm -hmm. And I was even more stunned when they set the King's Coronation for the beginning of May because the Queen's Coronation had been almost a year and a half after her father's death, after her accession. I had just assumed for whatever reason that it would be at the same uh, length of time and the fact that it's happening so quickly, I think speaks to the fact that it would be much more understated, much simpler, um, far less expense involved, and also just the modern ease of technology in planning one of these things. I think every single thing, every single detail for uh, the coronation in 1953 was effectively done by hand. Um, you know, no plugging uh, lists into Excel and having yeah. you know things turned out that way. Um, so uh, yeah, and I mean. I had always wanted to write these two books as companions. Another book came in between because I felt so impelled uh, to write it. But um, you know, I it was my hope that uh, Coronation Year would come out on the 70th anniversary year of the Queen's Coronation, as in, indeed it is coming out uh, uh, just two months before what would be the 70th anniversary of her of her being crowned. Um, but it also now happens to coincide with the new coronation. Um, so when I, interestingly, when I started work on the gown, what I was really interested in, uh, oh, thank you, sure. with the premise was that I wanted to know who had made Princess Elizabeth's gown. I knew Norman Hartnell had designed it, but who made it? Um, it, you know, vanishingly few designers actually do the work on the gowns they create. There's a handful of them, um, today, for example, Christian Lacroix, uh, can sew. I don't think he does, but he could if he wanted to. Um, Norman Hartnell did not sew. He had a, a brilliant mind as a designer, uh, but he relied on the women who worked for him to translate his ideas into reality. And so Princess Elizabeth had a very conventional gown in terms of the style. It was the embroidery that, that made it kind of magical. Um, also bear in mind, this is post-war England. Clothing was rationed. There's a whole side story to where uh, the women of England, thousands of them, sent in their own clothing coupons to Princess Elizabeth so she could legally have enough material uh, to have a proper wedding gown. Um, but because it was illegal to give other people outside your own family mm -hmm. clothing coupons, um, they had to send, they sent them all back. Uh, everybody got a nice little letter from Buckingham Palace with their clothing coupons back thanking them for their generosity, which I thought was really sweet. That's, That's so sweet. a lot of work for a handful of ladies in waiting, I think. Um, and then, uh, I'll grab that for later. Okay. And then this is a picture of the gown as it is, I'll hand you this, yeah. as it is today. And what's interesting is you can see, first off, even though this is a black and white photograph, how, how it is yellowed over time. It's got that beautiful candlelight uh, kind of yeah. satin. Yeah. Um, but it is, it's in very fragile condition. Uh, it's it's hardly ever displayed now 
uh, largely because this, it, the, the fabric has started to decay, but you can still see that beautiful, beautiful embroidery. I wanted to know how it was done, and I wanted to know the stories of the women behind it. Now, the, the, the whole story, kind of, I could take an hour and a half to describe it to you. What happened was that I was not able to ever get in touch with any of the original embroiderers. It had been so long, most of them had died. Um, and th there was one lady who was still alive, and very tragically, she had a stroke mm -hmm. uh, before I could get to England to talk to her, and she just was never well enough to speak with me. Um, but then I was able to meet uh, this incredible lady. Here's Betty. Uh, Betty was, still is, she's still with us, thank goodness, um, into her 90s now. Uh, she and is she not yeah. the prettiest woman too? She's so pretty, um, and she just she I was I mean she would be uh, ninety three now, and she worked as a seamstress. She was one of three seamstresses who who sewed the queen's gown. There's no machine sewing involved at all in any of these magnificent gowns. Everything every stitch was done by hand, um, and uh, in fact the the head. Um, of the madame who, who ran the, the salon referred to, uh, there were um, uh, women who ran sewing machines for some of the tailored goods, but she referred to them, uh, she was French as the mécanique, the mechanics, and she <laughs> couldn't stand it when the idea that any, even the long seams, the long straight seams, everything had to be done by hand. Uh, Betty had the great foresight to keep an, uh, a scrapbook, uh, and you can just see here, and I'll pass these around later, um, and if anybody watching from home wants to look, if you go way, way back in my Instagram and Facebook feeds um, to like 2018, 2019, <laughs> I don't, scroll, 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 mm -hmm. scroll. It's all there. I, I, I've got all these pictures up online. Um, but she kept everything. So uh, an example of the buttonholes that she made up the back of the gown one by one. She never made buttonholes. Uh, for something so important before. She was very, very nervous. And if anybody sews, you know, once you put a buttonhole in, you're not moving it. The fabric like, it is, you just, you will have ruined it if you try to move it. And she was so nervous that she, um, uh, that Miss Dooley, who uh, sent her off into a corner uh, to work and told the other girls not to bother her <laughs> while she did, while she did the, um, the buttonholes. And she was also the same size as the queen exactly. She had the same figure. So she often modeled the gown. Uh, when they're trying to do things like make sure wow. that the hem fell properly. Um, and so talking to her was absolutely transformative in terms of, of how I came to the story of, of the gown, of the women who worked uh, on it. Um, as I said earlier, when I started work on Coronation Year, I was tempted to focus on the creation of this, which was the Queen's Coronation gown, which is arguably, in some ways, I think a more important gown. Um, the, the embroidery here is, I would say, the finest I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. It incorporates the motifs or the, the kind of the floral emblems of not only the countries that make up Great Britain, but also the countries like Canada uh, that make up uh, the, the Commonwealth, uh, the countries over which she's still um, she's still queen. Uh, now some of them are no longer <laughs> countries over which she's queen. Well, just we'll just like just smooth over that for the moment. Um, one really sweet uh, story associated with that, um, and which I was thinking about the other day, it was St. David's Day in Wales, and the Princess of Wales, Princess Kate, as it were, 
uh, was wearing um, a brooch with a leek on it. Not a daffodil, but a leek, because a leek is the national emblem of Wales. And, and uh, Norman Hartnell had been under the impression it was a daffodil, so his first design for this included daffodils. At which point he was told uh, by some uh, kind of random official whose name I can't remember, oh, no, 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 you, you can't have daffodils. It has to be a leek. And Norman Hartnell's response was, a leek on the Queen's coronation gown. A leek, a vegetable. Like, and then it was kind of like, have you seen a leek? Do, like, really? Um, and somehow they managed to, um, and it, on the very front of her gown, that's where the leeks are, and they look, they're these beautiful kind of wispy things that almost look like, you know, when you see decorative grasses in a garden, it, it, almost like that. They're very elegant. You would never really guess they're leeks, but those are leeks. Um, the embroidery on this is just sensational. It's so beautiful. Um, and, and I was, as I say, tempted to write about the gown. But I thought I would just be retreading old gown, as, old ground, as much as I wanted to uh, go back there. What I looked at instead was the moment on the day of the coronation, when the queen went by in the gold state coach. Um, this coach is only ever used for things like coronations. Uh, very occasionally, uh, uh, the state opening of parliament, but more recently, just for the jubilees. In fact, the jubilee back in June last year. Uh, she was not, she did not ride in it, obviously. It's unbelievably uncomfortable to ride in. It's not sprung, so every time you pebble, you bounce up and down. And on top of that, if you have motion sickness issues, it's uh, strung onto wooden, well, it's, it's, it's strung on, there's a kind of the frame, and then there's leather, uh, kind of support, leather slings that, that the carriage itself is strung on. And so as you go along, it both, moves back and forth like this, but side to side. Oh, no. So oh, no. I just, actually, I don't get motion sickness, but thinking about that has yeah. been. And so imagine the queen and all of this, and then even on the return visit, or trip from Westminster Abbey through the streets of London back to, back to Buckingham Palace, with the heavy crown on her head, the orbit scepter in her hands, and all of the weight of the gowns she was, the robe she was wearing, and sitting in that and having to smile. The whole time, I just think, oh my goodness, the strength of character that took. But I wanted to know, what would it be like to have been on, in London on that day, to have seen her go by? And how, how might that moment affect a person? Um, and above and beyond just a fleeting moment, how could that actually change someone's life? And I decided that it had to have something to do, and let me just go through, hand off, yep. hand off all my bits and pieces here. I thought it would have something to do with the procession, the great procession through London. Um, this is, again, this will be up on my website very soon. This is actually an illustration. Uh, uh, it's a, it's a, a kind of a fictionalized version of the map. Uh, there are many official maps issued at the time of the, the procession, so people would know where to stand. Um, a friend of mine in Toronto who is an, uh, both an architect and an artist helped me imagine certain things for the book so I could not only have them in my head but then to share them with readers. And her name's uh, Charisma Panchapakasan and um, she helped actually redesign my home. I just, she's a very talented person. Um, but she's also a wonderful artist and so she imagined this for me, what it was like uh, for the Queen to go from Buckingham Palace up the Mall and around to, around to Buckingham, uh, to, to sort of Westminster Abbey. Um, 
Oh, sorry, there's Buckingham Palace, uh, and then looping down. And I, I looked at this map or version of it many, many times before I realized there's one little spot. Uh, most of the, the places along here, they're shock fronts. Uh, they're, they're, they're great government buildings. There are not a lot of places where an ordinary person could, could own a building or like, live in a building. But there's one stretch along the Northumberland Avenue uh, where it was possible, where there were a stretch of older homes, older buildings. And one of them I thought could be a hotel. And it could be a hotel that was very ancient and historic and was slowly kind of crumbling into dust. There was never enough money and they were, were desperate uh, for just, just enough to keep going. And all they would need is a few hundred, a few thousand pounds from overseas visitors coming to stay, coming to watch the coronation. And, and that would keep the Blue Lion you know, established 400 years earlier, um, one of London's oldest hotels uh, going. And so uh, the next thing I needed was to know what the building looked like. I knew where it was. The actual building didn't exist. So with Charisma's help, help she did all of this. I just furnished her with details of what I thought it looked like. And she used her skills as an architect and as a fine artist to create the Blue Lion. And, and, and now that I have this drawing in front of me, uh, I can't imagine what I thought it looked like before. I think this must have been it all, like it all along. And so this is the building that, that my main character is, is trying to save so desperately. And she has this one chance uh, because really if it doesn't work out, if she isn't able to get the visitors from America, Canada, Australia, and so on, to come and stay at her hotel. Then she'll have to close her doors, and then all the people she employs will be out of work. She has longtime residents who really have nowhere else to go. She's almost like a, it's not really, a, you know, she, they're, they're elderly, they're not, you know, uh, how should I put it, incapable of living anywhere else, but they're all somewhat eccentric, and she puts up with them, and, and she just can't bear the thought of them having to find their way somewhere else. And so all the action centers on how is Edie going to keep this hotel open and how is the queen uh, completely <laughs> inadvertently going to help her do it. Um, and the last picture I'm just going to share is one of my favorite pictures. And I think all of us are, are familiar with this photograph uh, by Cecil Beaton of the queen. Uh, I thought for many years, but probably a while ago I figured it out. I thought this was taken in Westminster Abbey, but it was actually, this is a photographic backdrop that he put up, and this was taken at Buckingham Palace after the coronation. Um, and the queen sat for many, many portraits. She must have been so oh, exhausted. So There's some beautiful portraits, if you look online at the V&A, they're portraits of the queen mum with Prince Charles and Princess Anne, uh, who at that stage had really blown past the any ability to behave. But, I mean, they were like, what, he was three and a half, I think she was two. Um, they were just, they were into the fully, fully wild stage, which I think anyone who's had toddlers can recognize. And there are these wonderful pictures, including outtakes of the queen mom trying to kind of encourage him, no, 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 come and sit for a photo. No, 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 it's time to come and sit for a photo. Um, and, uh, but this is the, you know, this is a picture in Canada, um, you know, many buildings still have, um, or had until recently, this picture on the wall of the Queen on Coronation Day. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's such an iconic picture, but it also speaks to the centrality of this event um, and how the eyes of the world were focused on Britain. Um, 
and how, again, how this one event that was so remote in some ways from ordinary people still had the power to, to change their lives. Um, so yeah, these are just a few of the bits and pieces. I didn't bring, I wish I'd brought, but I didn't have room in my luggage when I was packing for my week away. Um, I, I did an embroidery. Uh, I went to London, I learned how to do the fine embroidery that they used on the Queen's uh, wedding gown, the Princess Elizabeth's wedding gown. Uh, when I say I learned, I learned just enough to be able to copy one motif taking about 10 times longer than any of the professional embroiderers would do, and certainly not up to their standards, but it gave me that insight I needed to, to kind of get inside their heads and know what that kind of labor cost them. Um, and that's the, yeah, that's the obsessiveness of, of the historian, or history nerd is how I like to call myself. I think it sounds a little less pretentious. Before we run out of time, I do want to let those here ask any questions they might have of Jennifer and Ellery. And if you don't, I'll call on you. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ellery, I've read all of your books and I love them. Thank you. And I was especially happy in your um, newest storytelling one when Olivia and Captain Haviland come and sneak in. And I know you said that when you finish something, you're finished with it, but I just wondered if there would be a way that they would sneak in something else. Or you're going to be so happy because <laughs> the book that comes out in July, which is Murder in the Book Lover's Loft, happens at Oyster Bay, and Olivia and Haviland and Dixie, Michelle, Shelley, there's a whole bunch of characters. They're going to eat at Grumpy's Diner, so oh. they're going to go stay at Oyster Bay for half of the book, and then they're going to bring Olivia back to Storyton for the second half. Oh, how fun. And Olivia is going to fall in love with somebody from Storyton. So, yeah. Mm. I'm going to bring that. So, I kind of lied. Mm. I might end the series, but I really did miss her, too. So, she's going to be in a, a good bit of that book. So. And the dog. Just for you. Uh, of course, <laughs> and the dog. And, and there's actually going to be some new dogs. Oh, yay. More dogs. More people. <laughs> But I do, I, I've just, I've just loved, as, as soon as they come out, I just snatch them up and Thank you. I love them. Other questions? I'll ask you one, Ellery. Uh-oh, okay. First of all, your name comes from your love of a certain author, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Ellery Queen. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you're so good about writing about um, connecting the readers with books. What have you read? that you would want to share with other readers what's oh on your gosh. reading list that you love? You know, so I read just almost every genre. The only genre I don't read a lot of is contemporary romance. Um, I love history, which is why I love Jennifer's book. And if you haven't bought that yet, you should definitely buy it. It's amazing. So I also like books that are kind of set around objects. So if there's an interesting object and an object has a story, which is often because it has a story in history, that lends it a mysterious air to me. And my parents were in the antique, my mom was in the antique business, and my grandparents were in the antique business. So I love old things as a rule. And I like things that have their own mysteries. I like things with secret compartments and um, canes that have things hidden inside them. So I'll pretty much read anything if I feel like it's gonna be centered around a mysterious object or, um, or a place. So, but as far as specifics, uh, I also really love ancient history. So I love Greek retellings. I really loved Stone Blind by Natalie Hayes. That was my last five-star read. It was exquisite. And 
I like things that, that take a different look at women's roles in literature, and this was kind of looking at, you know, we've always thought of Medusa as a monster, right? She's the one who turns everybody to stone, and this book says, well, how did she become this monster, right? She wasn't born this way. She was cursed. She was cursed by a female goddess, and in, we all know in Greek stories, like the Greeks take stuff out on the girls, the, the young women that Zeus sleeps with. Nobody messes with Zeus. But you know, Hera goes around, she's changing girls to swans and this and that. I'm like, but the, the girl didn't do anything. He came down in a golden shower and like did his thing. What is she supposed to do? Hera comes down and punishes the girl. So again, we've got a Greek goddess who punishes Medusa. And Medusa was not always like this. And it's actually like a really sad and moving story, but it also, we could totally contemporize that and think about this is Women's History Month. Right. When do women lift each other up and when do we put each other down? So I love books that take a look at that and you know basically say like here is a group of women that are lifting other women up and here is what happens when we don't work together. And that is a book about what happens when women work against each other and it doesn't come out well. So I, I like books like that too. I like books where you get to the end and you're like, you know, we should all be friends with our, our sisterhood. So I, li I like any kind of books about sisterhood which I felt a lot of in, in the gown with the, the girls that were working together. There was, also, there's a clear sisterhood there. I always want to make sure my books pass the Bechdel test, right? Which is uh, in any book that centers on women, uh, their relationships. This is, I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm flattening it out really. But it, their relationships should not be dependent on their relationship with a man. So the women should just be friends and, and there should be, I think that, the, the acid test is, uh, is there at least one conversation in the book where the women talk to each other and it isn't about a man? Mm -hmm. And then and then you, you pass the test. And I'd like to think my books more than pass that test. Um, it would be mortifying if they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Just have your characters talk about books. Yeah. That, that works yeah. out. Yeah. Why yeah. ladies, that yeah. works out well. Yeah. 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 I'd overthrow the patriarchy. Yeah. That's also an excellent. <laughs> especially tuning in virtually your new book what's coming how how they can find out more about you do you have websites social media so i spend most of my time on instagram i'm also on facebook but not as often um so end of april is paper cuts that's book six in this series and then book nine and the story to the book of truth mystery series that comes out in july that's murder in the book lovers loft and everything's on my website. Now now we're doing like merch, so if you want super soft sweatshirts and shirts where you honorary member of the Secret Book and Scone Society, those are available yeah. through my website. I do not make them. I have absolutely zero talents in fashion design, sewing, or anything like that. I can bake, and, and I can do jigsaw puzzles, and I can write books, that's about it. So, um, but they are for sale there, and they're really, they're wonderful. So that's where I am, that's what's coming out too this year. I'm in awe because I struggle to do one book every two years. Well, you have to do a ton of historical Well, research. yeah, it's... Um, I just have to read books. This is, so this comes out April 4th, so indeed a month before the coronation, which again, I had, I did not go to Balmoral, so if anything, it's the Queen's Tiana Square. Or to find that we've you lost her. You don't seem like the type, I know. I, yeah, I'm just, I don't think I'm cunning enough, to be honest. Um, but now there's an idea for you. Yeah. <laughs> Fiction writer, <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't believe I'm even 
find me again. I do not play an amazing uh, Instagram game to the degree that Ellery does. Oh my goodness, I'm in awe. Um, but I'm trying to up my game on Instagram and Facebook, and I'm author Jennifer Robson all together there. And and my website is Jennifer hyphen Robson and then I'm traveling all over the place uh, not back to Arizona um, at this tour but I'll be down the east coast of the states in April I'll be in California as well that first week of April uh, in San Diego with Adventures by the Book and then I'll be doing a couple of high tea events in one in Toronto although it's sold out and one in Vancouver uh, with some other authors including I just want to recommend my friend Janie Chang has a new book out called The Porcelain Moon. It's oh, a very, yeah. very beautiful book. Uh, I've been taught, she's been telling me about it for years as she worked on it. Um, it's set in the First World War and it turns on uh, something that I'm ashamed as a scholar of that period that I knew very little about until I read Janie's book and heard about her research. It turns on the Chinese labor corps who were brought over in World War One. Uh, to do some of the most dangerous, disheartening, uh, miserable work uh, in effectively the pioneer battalions. So they were, they were just they were doing uh, like hard labor effectively, so that that uh, uh, soldiers could be freed up to fight at the front. Um, and and they really suffered, and their uh, heroism uh, has rarely been acknowledged. And mm -hmm. and 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 their story is at the center of. of book, although um, it's centered upon a, a wonderful, wonderful heroine who, who you will not forget anytime soon. So Janie Chang, Porcelain Moon, mm -hmm. also, I mean, Janie's covers, I had, shout out to the designer at HarperCollins, whose name is just escaping me now, but who does her covers because they were always so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like they should all be framed. <laughs> um, before we conclude, I do want to let those here today, those tuning in, know that you can reserve in advance. Coronation Street and Paper Cuts, and it is always a smart thing to do for authors because that helps build them as the publication date approaches. So think about ordering, reserving copies, um, they make great gifts for any occasion, don't they? Or you can, you know, use them as weapons if you need to. <laughs> I'd like to thank Ellery Adams and Jennifer Robson for taking time to visit today, for you attending the team, for those tuning in. We hope you come back to another event at the Poison Pen Bookstore. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.